Nook Nation, and welcome to this week's edition of the Nook Nation podcast right here on the Chinook Social Network. We are excited to bring you new content this week. And joining me once again on the Nook Nation podcast is your voice of the Lakeshore Chinooks, Mr. Matt Menzel. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Eric, always a pleasure. How has uh, the last few weeks of quarantine been? Are you losing your mind or are you staying busy? Or Trying to find ways to stay busy, to be honest with you, but... Uh... I think like most, I'm, I'm sitting here waiting anxiously to you know, figure out when things start to get back to normal and, and, and when we can start putting things back in our calendar. But, you know, trying to do whatever I can, cleaning and, and doing stuff that I've maybe put off for months that I can finally get to now. But, yeah, starting to go a little stir crazy. Are you one that uh, tunes into the old Brewer broadcasts and Bucks games and ESPN content, or are you just going cold turkey on sports altogether right now? I have a standard when it comes to watching an old game. It depends the year. I mean, if it's 2018, 19, yeah, forget it. That just happened, you know, last month or last year. But if we're talking like 1980s, love it, especially the games that are from the regular season because the playoff games, the championship games, I've seen those over the years. But, you know, a regular season game that's got maybe, you know, very little to do as far as records go, love that stuff. I don't know why. I like, I like watching and hearing the old broadcasts. Well, hopefully we won't have to watch old games much longer in the <laughs> summer. We'll have Chinooks baseball and Brewers baseball back up and running. But our topic today is top pitching performances for the Lakeshore Chinooks from 2018. I'm sorry, through 2012 through 2019. So the first eight seasons in Chinooks history. Next week, we're going to have the top hitting and offensive uh, performances over the eight years. So we thought we'd do this kind of year by year. And Matt, you did a great job of kind of outlining this earlier today and there are some names on here I probably haven't seen since they played, so it'll definitely be another trip down memory lane. Let's get things started with uh, the 2012 inaugural season. You know, the thing that jumped out to me about pitching overall is the fact that the Chinook pitching staff has ranked number one in the entire league three times in their first eight seasons. And you go back to 2012, the inaugural season, I mean, just based on memory, you would say, okay, that team struggled as you'd expect an expansion team to do. Pitching-wise, though, might have been the strength of that team. They were ranked third in the league with a collective ERA of 3.89. And look at some of the names on that list. And some of the guys were part of the team in 2012, came back in 2013. So you had that experience. And one of the first names outside of Joe Greenfield, who started the season opener, Tyler Tickey. Tickey was a Milwaukee Panther. He was the starter for the first-ever home game at Camp Cole Park back on June 4th of that 2012 summer. And Look at that performance. Yes, it was a loss against the Eau Claire Express. Perhaps some butterflies with all the pageantry that came on during the pregame celebration. But after the first thing that would see him go up a couple of runs, I mean, he was lights out. It was a game that would see him go seven strong. He allowed those two runs, three hits. But this is the best stat, especially in a league where the, the strike zone could be inconsistent. 11 strikeouts at a single walk. And he did so by throwing 88 pitches. 60 for strikes. I mean, in this day and age where, you know, the last 10-plus years in the league, the pitch counts becomes an important number. I mean, he was able to be effective and efficient. Yeah, and two things I want to hit on that you kind of brought up, you know, as an expansion team, we usually start recruiting in September, right after the season. We probably didn't start recruiting until December or January that year. So the fact that we had, a, you know, a top three pitching staff is pretty impressive. Credit to Dean Renneke and John Bodelich that you're putting that all together. And, you know, you mentioned Tyler Tickey. I kind of completely forgot he was with us in 2012 because his most 
impressive performances came in 2013. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit, about that 2013 season. But you're right, you look back at some of the accolades as far as the team goes. He was the, the team pitcher of the year back in, in 2013 with some nice performances against Madison. But I want to go, you know, fast forward nine days from that, that home opener, our first ever home game, and you go to June 13th of that 2012 season. You know, the, the team's first ever victory came at Green Bay, first game they ever played. Well, the first shutout in team history also came against the then known as Green Bay Bullfrogs. And look at the three that combined for that shutout. It was a one nothing pitcher's delight in which Carson Boucher, there's a name out of Saginaw Valley State. He had some nice performances that inaugural season. He ended up being the winning pitcher. He went six strong, only allowed four hits, had eight strikeouts. How about Keaton Steele? He was one of those pitchers that had some serious velo and he was a Missouri Tiger, eventually was drafted by the Minnesota Twins in 2014. And on the back end of that shutout, earning the save was the first closer in team history and Tyler Sparger. He was an Eau Claire product. He eventually would go the Eau Claire Express route in a future season. But Tyler Sparger that year, I mean, he was a workhorse. He ended up setting a team record that still stands today, making 24 appearances in that 2012 summer. And you kind of mentioned Carson Bouchain. Uh, that would probably be our next pitching performance at lacrosse um, about two weeks later on June 26th. Five innings, only one hit. You know, so not a super long inning but or outing, but five innings is a very respectable outing in the Northwoods League when these guys are on pitch limits and everything. And I think what jumped out to me about that performance is the fact that you did it at Copeland Park in lacrosse, which is a hitter's paradise. And that ball flies out of Copeland Park, the lumber yard, as it's known. And and especially early on when, when the Chinooks and the lacrosse loggers had a, a consistent rivalry, the Chinooks had a lot of bad luck at lacrosse, a lot of walk-off losses at Copeland Park. And so Carson Bouchain, yeah, the team ended up losing that game three to two, but he certainly put them in a position to win it. And, you know, as I was looking through this list of top pitching performances, one thing that kind of jumped out to me is there have been some outstanding pitching performances but so many either tough no decisions or losing efforts because of a lack of run support. And another name that on your list for 2012 is a name I probably hadn't heard in six or seven years. Uh, I believe he was from uh, the St. Cloud area. Jason Hoppy had a few memorable moments in 2012 as well. Out of Minnesota State, and he ended up being drafted in the 27th round by the Texas Rangers in 2014. You look at Hoppy, though, and against the lacrosse loggers at at uh, Capco Park on July 16th of 2012, he had a nice seven and two-third innings pitched. No runs, four hits, five strikeouts with a couple of walks. He had the, the, the eight of the defense behind him making plays. Defense was, you know, pretty strong in 2012. But then he also had a performance, you know, about a week before that against the Wisconsin Woodchucks, another, again, hitter's paradise up at Athletic Park in which one nothing loss against the Woodchuck, but Hoppy did all he could to give his team a chance to win. Seven and two-thirds pitched, only allowed a run on four hits. But here's the number that jumps out. And there have been a handful of double-figure strikeout performances. He had 12 strikeouts, only one walk, and he neared the pitch limit, 107 pitches thrown in that performance against the Woodchucks. And he went on to pitch in the minors for a few seasons. Uh, kind of looking back, he – he was drafted by the Rangers in 2014, uh, spent a few years on some of their lower levels, and spent a quite a bit of time in 2016 with the Inland Empire 66ers. Boy, there's a tongue twister. Uh, before kind of calling it a career. So he had, you know, short A and, and full season A. He was in the minors for three years, which 
very respectable from a guy that came from a smaller collegiate baseball program. No, and, you know, something that jumped out to me, too, looking through his list is, A, in 2012, a handful of pitchers from that team, as we mentioned, was ranked third in the league in pitching and a being drafted. And, and maybe at the time you're sitting there going, okay, the win-loss column is what it is. But there are some outstanding pitchers on that team, not to mention – the league has changed dramatically. You know, when I first joined the league back in 2007, 2008, it was odd to see a pitcher, let alone a position player, come from a Division three school, an NAIE school. A lot of the talent back then was all West Coast or warmer climate type athletes. And now when you look throughout the Chinook history, they've benefited from so many players that have come from smaller schools that typically you wouldn't expect – you know, would come to this next level and be able to rise to the occasion, but they have. And speaking of the draft, I think an individual we can touch on next is someone who was actually drafted twice, as in Joe Greenfield. He was drafted during the season by the Boston Red Sox in 2012, decided to continue playing for the Chinooks in Eastern Illinois, and then would be drafted again in 2013. But Joe Greenfield, when you talk about that first season, he's probably the most notable and recognizable name on that Chinook seems like every team has that one player that that you know is, is kind of loosey-goosey is a fan favorite and Joe Greenfield certainly was that and from a broadcasting standpoint he was announced a delight too because he worked fast I mean he got the ball and he wanted to pitch right away half the time he had to wait for his pitcher to be ready to to receive the pitch but Joe Greenfield was your 2012 pitcher of the year for the Chinooks uh, he pitched as mentioned in the in the first ever game against the the Green Bay Bullfrogs, but but Joe Greenfield had a nice performance in 2012 against the, the Eau Claire Express, in which he went seven strong on July 13th, another game against Wisconsin Rapids. And again, with the pitch count being what it is, complete games are hard to come by in this league. I don't care. I mean, if you're just throwing nonstop strikes, you're still throwing a ton of pitches. And and uh, certainly getting through nine innings is, is almost like pitching an no-hitter to some degree because it's been rare with the pitch count being what it is. And, and Greenfield is able to accomplish that feat July 29th of 2012, at home against the Wisconsin Rapids. He went the distance, all nine against the Rafters. He only allowed two runs, one of which was earned. Five hits, eight strikeouts, a couple of walks, 113 pitches, 72 were strikes. But what was key is he got that last out. Had he not been able to get that last batter out, he would have been out, and somebody would have come in for relief for that final out. And so and pressure on, back against the wall, and he was able to, you know, bunker down and get that final out and get the complete game performance. And it's funny you talked about how quick he worked. I remember, you know, Dean Renneke, former minor league pitcher himself, was very focused on the player side on game days. Then there was folks like myself and Chad Bauer on the business side. And I remember me and Chad, we loved watching Joe pitch. But at the same time, it was terrible for business because that concession <laughs> stand would have to close after an hour and a half. We're in the seventh inning already. So Joe Greenfield is good for the field, but he was bad for business in some Cards, but I always remember him. You know, he was always a very lovable guy, always high spirits, motivating the team. And you know, it was amazing watching him just completely turn everything off right before his pitching performances. He'd be joking around, but 15 minutes before he took the mound, he became a whole different person and prepared for that uh, pitching performance. I don't think I ever saw him upset either. I mean, like you said, he always came to the ballpark blessed and happy to be and get the opportunity to do what he loved. And, and you look at his time with the Chinooks in two years. 19 starts, that's a franchise record. Nine wins in those two years, that's a record. On top of, again, he came back and made 12 starts in 2013, which is tops among the Chinook record books. So Joe Greenfield certainly made the most of his opportunity. 
And every year he messages the Lakeshore Chinooks petitioning for a Joe Greenfield bobblehead. One of these years, we will get you a Joe Greenfield bobblehead. So It's got to be a 10th year anniversary special, right? Like the, the best of? I would think it's on the short list. Absolutely. I mean, I think to this day, he is still probably one of the fan favorites, even being eight, nine years ago. I think the last name we should kind of cover is another individual that was drafted um, in, a, in a following draft. And that would be, he was also a postseason all-star, Ryan Harris out of Florida. He's another guy that tended to work fast, and one of his top performances came August 1st of 2012. And it was a challenging game because Battle Creek has that, that school day game, and it seems like the Snooks are always a part of it, which means it starts at 11.05 Battle Creek time, Eastern time. It's 10 o'clock here, and it's after a night game usually at C.O. Brown Stadium. And so you have the quick turnaround, and no different for the, the former Florida Gator and for Ryan Harris, who – would be drafted in the 26th round in 2014 by the Boston Red Sox. He came out and he shut that Bombers team down. I don't care what time it was. It could have been, you know, three in the morning. He had his stuff ready to go for that matchup on August 1st. And he went eight and a third, allowed no runs, five hits, six strikeouts, one walk, and made for a great bus ride home for the 4 nothing Chinook win. And he has some heat, absolutely. And I think there was a lot of high hopes for him in the minors. Things just didn't pan out. He spent 2014 and 15 at a ball and then fortunately his career was kind of ended there but definitely a fast worker um, big fastball and I think that would kind of bring us to 2013 you know our first taste of playoff baseball we were the second half South Division champions and really just a few innings away from making the Northwoods League championship and that was the first team that was ranked number one in league as far as pitching goes among the three teams that have been ranked number one over the course of the franchise history but they had a collective ERA a 3.27 that year. And right from the get-go, you know, Kyle Bauman helped set the tone in, on May 31st of that 2013 season. He was a Jefferson College product. And you and I talked about this on a different podcast, but he had a no-hitter. He was taken out of a game with a no-hitter against the Green Bay Bullfrogs. He went eight strong, no runs, no hits, six strikeouts, a couple of walks. And you could say, well, what about his, his pitch total? He'd only thrown 79 pitches when he was taken out of the game through eight, a couple of problems. A, the scouts wanted to see this kid named Jace Chancellor. The other problem is the game was 0-0, so there was no guarantee the game was going to go beyond nine. It did end up being a one nothing 11-inning loss. But, but Kyle Bauman, that was one of his, his better performances of that year, and a, a year that saw so many talented guys, you know, take the mound. We mentioned Tyler Tickey, who ended up being the, the team pitcher of the year that season. He came up big in a game against Madison about a week later. He also had a big game against lacrosse on July 8th of that year and Eric Hanhold you know maybe not one particular performance stands out but he's one of three pitchers that have made their major league baseball debuts that have been Chinooks at one point and he was part of that 2013 team and he had nine appearances that year six starts and what jumps out to me about Hanhold was he was three and one he had one save he could be used in a variety of different ways but he was also good for a number of innings, and he had four-plus outings in which he threw six or more. So not only did you get quality from Eric Hanhold, but you also got, you know, length and, and, and some longevity. And another, you mentioned Eric Hanhold had a stint with the Mets um, for a September call-up ball back in 2017, 2018, I believe it was. Another name on the 2013 roster, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Alex Young was a part of the roster that year, um, Northwestern product, and he had a heck of a Father's Day performance. Yeah, Father's Day indeed on June 16th of that year, and five and two-thirds in the game in which the game was scoreless against Battle Creek through five. And so, you know, it goes back to something we mentioned, talking about 2012, is 
the lack of run support. But for Young, okay, scoreless through five. He went five and two-thirds. He allowed only one run eventually on three hits, eight strikeouts, three walks. Chinooks erupted in that game, eventually won the game 13-2, to an eight-run seventh inning. He ended up being the pitcher of the day in the Northwoods League, despite the fact he had no decision. And he pitched well. You go back to his numbers, four appearances, three starts during his time with the Chinooks, four no decisions, but he never allowed more than three runs, and the team won three of his four appearances. And I have to correct myself. I said he was from Northwestern. He was from TCU. TCU, yeah. He's from the Chicago area. He played at Kane County. So for some reason, I always associate his entire career in the Chicagoland area for some reason. But uh, we have really exciting news. Me and Matt will actually be having a conversation with Alex Young, hopefully in the next week or two here while he's got some kind of downtime. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you in the coming weeks. But, yeah, only four appearances with us. We would love to have had him longer. He went on to be drafted in 2015. And, Obviously, a huge first year last year. He set the rookie strikeout record for the Arizona Diamondbacks. So I think they have big things planned for him in future years with the Diamondbacks. And you kind of mentioned Bowman um, to start off 2013. You know, he was an all-star appearance. He was also a postseason all-star. One name that I didn't see on your list that actually was also a postseason all-star, and I wanted to kind of get your opinion on how he got that title, was Mitch Seawall, was a Northwest League postseason (laughs) all-star. We didn't really have any huge memorable appearances in 2013. You know, I think he's one of those guys that fits in a category. And we could probably talk about others. Hunter Duvall is another name that comes to mind where you look at success. And it's because, you know, he could give you one or two innings of just quality relief. He didn't have flashy numbers. The strikeouts may not have been there. The, the, the walks necessarily weren't there. But he put the ball in play to where the defense was and the defense made plays behind. But he was a – a reliable guy. You knew what you were getting when he came out of that bullpen, and and he could bridge that gap between starter and closer in, in a number of tight ball games. So it doesn't surprise me that, that he ended up being on that list. The reason I don't have, a, like I said, a, a necessarily one particular performance for him on my list is because, again, nothing jumps out flashy-wise as far as stats go. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of my list is based on, oh, he had 12 strikeouts, 11 strikeouts, whatever. He didn't have big performances like that, but he just did what he needed to do to get the job done. If I remember right, he was unfortunately a losing pitcher in that series with Madison. He gave up the home run in the ninth inning. Was that Mitch Seawall? Well, you look at that game, and, you know, that made the list with Donnie Hissop. He's a guy that had been a, a closer or had been at least in a, a back end of the bullpen relief uh, situation earlier in the year, and all of a sudden, because of the playoffs being what they are and the lack of maybe pitching, at that point in the year, he became the starter in that decisive game against Madison in which – now, he started the game, as, as you mentioned, he didn't take the loss. But, but Donnie Issa, that was a game in which he went six, allowed no runs, five hits, four strikeouts. But you're right, then there was the three-run home run in the ninth inning that ended up giving Madison a 5-3 to three win. And I don't think anybody that follows the Chinooks will ever forget the name Alex Bacon – that were at that game because Bacon ended up playing for a couple different teams in this time in the league with Wisconsin Rapids and Madison, but he crushed everybody's hopes that night. And there is a little controversy within the league about that. He was a rapid rafters for most of the year, then suddenly was dropped and was put on Madison. And the league actually put in some rule changes shortly after that season to kind of prevent teams that ownership that own multiple teams, prevent them from doing that before the playoffs. But I remember now, correct me if I'm wrong, if we would have won that game, we would have gone to the World Series, correct? Would have gone on to the, yeah. Yeah, you're right, the World Series. 
I'd applaud for a minute too because the playoff format's changed over the last couple of years. Yeah. You're right. It would have been best of three and one going on to the championship series. Which I believe would have been against the Duluth Huskies. I remember being at the stadium behind home plate. I was nervous as all get out. I was literally hiding behind Dean trying not to watch the game. And when Alex Bacon hit that home run, it was like something out of a movie. Like the si the stadium just went silent. You know, you got the Madison fans over on the Lion Kudos Dock cheering, but I think that ball still might be traveling somewhere in northern Wisconsin. I mean, Bacon absolutely crushed that ball. Well, it's funny you bring that up because the, the only other time I can remember feeling like that can the very next year in the Summer Collegiate World Series against Mankato. Game one up there in Mankato, Minnesota. And all of a sudden, it's a, you know, a game with the Chinooks are a couple lots away from taking care of business. Next thing you know, a home run comes through in the bottom of the ninth inning, a shot that, like you mentioned, even with Bacon's home run, probably hasn't landed yet in Mankato, Minnesota. If it has, it's, you know, it's long gone. But uh, one of those games ended up going extra innings, and you just felt like the, the momentum had swayed in that game. Snooks find a way to take it in extra innings, and, and that ended up being the, the series, you know, shifter because now it comes to Mequon and the Snooks take care of business. But you, you almost go back to that game, too, and say, what if? Mankato wins that game. Do they win the series? And I think the last thing that we kind of started the broadcast off with to finish things out on 2013, he'd have to be Tyler Tickey, our pitcher of the year, Northwoods League All-Star. What were probably his top two or three most dominant performances that season? Boy, that's a great question because I know one of them that jumps out and mentioned it, he kind of set the tone from the get-go on June 11th. He had a game against Madison, and Madison was, you know, they're always a tough team for the Chinooks no matter where the game's played. And this one was at Capco Park in which the Chinooks prevailed 2-1. to one. He went six strong and did not allow a single run on three hits, had four strikeouts, a walk. He was the, the player of that night. And you go further down the list, and Tiki, about a month later, had another big game against lacrosse. Again, it was a 2-1 to one result for the Chinooks. He was the winning pitcher in that particular performance. One of his better performances, he went seven and a third. And in that case, he allowed only one run on four hits, five strikeouts, no walks. And that was a lacrosse team that also was right there. Those, those first couple years for the Chinooks, it seemed like Madison lacrosse were the two teams that typically were right there battling with the Chinooks for a playoff spot. Yeah, we always enjoyed playing the loggers. And unfortunately, with all the expansion, the loggers now in the Great Plains division, Moving on to probably our most memorable year and most successful year, that would be the 2014 championship season. And when you talk about that pitching staff, what stands out the most in 2014? I was thinking about this earlier today. It's hard to, you know, look at the 2014 team and start saying this guy did A, B, C, and D because it was a – it truly was a collective effort. Everybody, it didn't matter what role, whether you were a starter, middle relief, back end of the bullpen, closer – everybody stepped up. It, there was no drop-off. You knew, and I think Mark Moriarty, the, the pitching coach at the time, Eddie Morgan, the field manager, they knew. They had confidence in that pitching staff no matter what the situation was, no matter who needed to come in. There wasn't going to be a big drop-off from what they had just received. And That was another pitching staff, number one in the league at a collective ERA. I mean, think about this. 2.92 for the entire year for that pitching staff at a ballpark that is more pitcher-friendly than, than not at Capco Park. And, and so you had instances that year where the team was winning games by being no hit, by coming through with only one or, or two hits. I mean, the pitching staff was that dominant that they could make things happen. And you had a guy like Joe Pavlovich. I mean, he's a Division three guy at University of Wisconsin, Oscars, who set the tone immediately. I mean, he came on, and, and he was a strong relief pitcher. He, he took some tough losses throughout the course of the year, but he was part of the team in both 2013 and 14. And one of his better games came on – 
you know, July 17th of that year. He, he came through five innings against the, the Green Bay Bullfrogs. It was a series in which pitching – I mean, you want to look at one series that, that made me define how dominant that pitching staff was. July 17th, July 18th against Green Bay, the Schnooks came through with back-to-back wins by a combined score of 7 nothing. I mean, they just took care of business against the Green Bay team that that year is battling with the Schnooks for a playoff spot. Other names that, that come to mind – you have Travis Hisson. He was out at Wright State, a couple of Wright State Raiders that year. Andrew Elliott was the closer for most of that season, and he, he had some serious velo. And you knew when he was coming in, you know, a save wasn't far behind. He had 13 saves that year. That's still franchise best. Uh, James Teague out of Arkansas. Teague is the guy that, in, 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 you know, you and I talked about this in the past. Everyone talks about the, the Snooks winning the game by being no hit by Dominic Mazza, Wisconsin Rapids, on July 15th. But tends to be forgotten the fact that James Teague, who was the winning pitcher that game for the Chinooks, he went six strong, no runs, only one hit, 12 strikeouts, one walk. That was a game that featured one hit between the two teams, 27 strikeouts, and four walks among both pitching staffs in that no-hitter on July 15th. But, of course, you know, I mentioned some of those names. You got to bring up, though, the likes of Sean Anderson and Jake Tuttle. They were the co-team pitchers of the year that year, and and rightfully so. Anderson was dominant in the mound. Jake Tuttle, he was dominant in relief, and he was a local product from McGuanaville. Yeah, Jake Tuttle is the one that I remember best that season. I mean, he had a stretch of, I don't know, 20, 21 games where he didn't let up a run or something ridiculous like that. And it, it kind of got um, shadowed by Andrew Elliott's performance because he was the closer. And with Tuttle that season as the setup man or eventually in some closing situations, he recorded the final out in the championship. I mean, yep. he was untouchable the entire 2014 season. You look, 21 appearances. That includes three three in the postseason. They played four playoff games that year, and he was, you know, relied upon three times. And you mentioned it, allowed a single run all year, an earned run that came at Wisconsin. And that was in a playoff game that eventually would see Zach Bowers come through with a grand slam and take care of business at Athletic Park. But he was still the winning pitcher in that game, in that, that first playoff game of 2014. But you mentioned it best, though. He might best be remembered for pitching the final three innings against Mankato to bring home the Summer Collegiate World Series, in which he allowed no runs on one hit. That was a, another pitcher duel, a 3 nothing Chinook win. And he was part of three seasons over his time with the, the Chinooks, but he was so reliable in the postseason when so many guys needed to be because you had a game the night before that went, Forever, 13 innings against Mankato, and in that decisive second game, him and uh, Joe Pavlovich came through and combined for the nine innings in that shutout victory. And you mentioned something I completely forgot about, the fact that Tuttle played to us for three seasons. I always just remember the 2014 season, but, you know, Andrew Elliott went on to be drafted and had a decent minor league career. James Teague, who kind of the underdog story, again, you know, he doesn't get enough recognition over Chinook's history, but drafted by Baltimore and had three seasons in the Myers before retiring in 2019. Uh, and you, as you mentioned, Sean Anderson, another one of those guys, you knew you were in good hands, kind of like Marshall Gazowski, which we talked about. Whenever Sean Anderson took the mound, you knew it was probably going to lead to a win that year. And, you know, getting called up last year by the Giants and kind of plays a starting and relief role. And another individual that you and me will have the honor of kind of catching up with here um, online in the next few weeks that we'll bring to our fans as a part of an exclusive interview, but that pitching staff, just unbelievable. I mean, that season, it's like you don't ever remember losing. I mean, every no. night at home, we just won, and we won, and we won, and it just felt like we never lost that year. And, you know, like we've mentioned in past podcasts, 
I don't think we'll ever replicate that. Championship season, we hosted the All-Star game. Eddie Morgan was coach of the year. He was the All-Star manager. Mark Moriarty, assistant coach of the year. You know, um, I believe it was Andrew Elliott started the All-Star game for us. Joe Pavlovich appeared. I mean, everything just lined up in 2014. I don't think it'll be a season that will ever be duplicated. No, you're dead on. I mean, that, that was beyond special. And I know Traverse City had a special season this past summer. Same thing. It, it, these seasons come once in a long while, if at all, for some franchises. But for this to happen year three, look at Anderson. Five and one that year. And he pitched 11 times. The team won nine of those 11 games. I mean, he just you knew when he was pitching, you know, the, the rest would take care of itself. And he came up big in that, that decisive playoff game against the Woodchucks in that, that South Divisional Championship Series. They ended up going 10 before Mr. August, Zach Bowers, came through with a walk-off single. But I have to bring up, because, you know, even talking with Dean Renneke in the past, you look at that extra inning game against Mankato, we talked about it in, in, in referencing 2013, just, you know, one home run, potentially changed the whole momentum of that game. Pitching, you know, at that point, you're already gone nine innings and, and you're, you're looking for matchups, running out of pitching. A guy like Sterling Kerner, out of Florida Gulf Coast. I mean, he played a couple of years with the Snooks. He came on a relief, ended up being the winning pitcher. He had seven wins that year, a franchise record. And Mike Lekowitz, he was out of Augustana, South Dakota. Those two guys ended up pitching the last two and two-thirds among six pitchers used. And when the Snooks needed somebody to step up because, again, you're trying to win this game, but you also in the back of your mind realize there's still a game two, potentially a game three that you have to mentally prepare for as well. These guys came up big, saving the rest of the bullpen for what was to come. If my memory serves me right, too, Mike Lekowitz had a few shaky outies before that. So I remember watching that game from our offices. We were all kind of nervous when he took the mound, and he came through in a big way and got us back home to where the next night we won it all. You're dead on. And that was one of those games, though, too, that it seemed like any time the Chinook scored to take the lead, man, Cato had an answer. So it felt like that game was never going to end. But you're right, Lekowitz ended up pitching the last, and he came on, and and he, I think, gave up one hit, and, and Mankato had an opportunity to tie the game, but he was able to slam the door shut, and that was a, uh, a crazy bus ride back. I remember Dean Renneke, nothing was open. There was no post-game meal. Stopped at a Walgreens. He had the credit card. Anything you wanted at Walgreens was on Dean. Yeah, we left the office probably at midnight. We were prepping for tickets for the next day. I came back at 6 a.m., and Chad Bauer, who had drove some of the owners out there, had just laid down to take a nap, as he called it, at 6 a.m. And then, you know, by 8 o'clock, we were getting ready to sell tickets for our championship game. So before we head to a quick break, let's kind of talk about 2015. You know, the year we had all kind of hoped that we'd be the first team in North League history to have back-to-back -back championships. It didn't happen. But who stands out the most during the 2015 season? Well, Lake Bakker is probably the first name that jumps out. Now, that was also a year in which Marshall Kozowski was part of the team, but I don't think he really had his coming out, so to speak. Now, he had some great performances in 2015, but he really made a name for himself in, in 2016. So I won't talk much about him in, in, in referencing the 2015 team, but, but Lake Bakker, an all-star, another Division three guy that, that John Bonelidge, the former Schnook field manager, sent to the Schnooks. He's out of Whitewater. He ended up being the, the team pitcher of that year, ended up being drafted in the fifth round by San Diego in 2016. But he had some nice performances, especially early on in games against Green Bay and against Battle Creek, in which he was able to limit that, that pitch count. He also had a big game against Kalamazoo that gets overshadowed by the fact that Lucas Raley had four home runs in, in that single game against Kalamazoo on, on the 4th of July. But like Bakker, when it, all seven innings, a complete game, 
only allowed two runs, one earned, seven hits, five strikeouts, only one walk. And the reason that was significant is if you remember back in 2015, the team played back-to-back doubleheaders at Kalamazoo. And so pitch really, you know, was, was vital during that stretch where you're guaranteed at least 14 innings per day. And he was able to give the team all seven in game one on July 4th. The day before that, you had a guy by the name of Kevin Long. Look that one up. He's out of Lehigh. He was able to give these Snooks all seven. One of his better performances and, and one of, ended up being a, a nice showing against Kalamazoo. So those are some of the names that come out. Kevin Long also had a nice, you know, relief appearance late in the year. But that was a team, like you said, that, that maybe surprised many because it had been a franchise up to this point that had been kind of built on pitching. That was one of the first teams that was kind of middle of the pack when it came to pitching. And closer by committee. They really never established a true closer that year you had. Guys like Joe Stoll, Sterling Kerner, Jack Landwehr, Jake Tuttle, Andrew Shapps, Connor Jones. That was your, your, you know, closing by committee. Those guys had saved throughout the course of the year, but there really wasn't that Andrew Elliott type in 2015. And the first time in, you know, two or three seasons that we didn't make the playoffs since our inaugural season, unfortunately. And you hit it right on the head. Kevin Long, I had to look up the name. When you sent me that list, I did not remember Kevin Long. He's probably the first name on this list that I couldn't remember for the life of me. But the thing I found most fascinating about Lake Bacar the first year, if I remember right, he was also Whitewater's kicker for their powerhouse football team. So he was doing two sports at the University of Whitewater. I mean, think about this, too. I mean, he's winning or at least playing for national championships for football on top of the fact their baseball team. It seems like Andy Willie is competing for a national championship. So – you know, sometimes you say, oh, he's a Division Three guy, but he's playing at the top level of Division Three and, and, and finding ways to succeed. And so he brought that winning mentality with him to the Chinooks, and, and he was a winner. I mean, when he went out there and pitched, he pitched extremely well, it seemed like, every time he went out there. But he, too, at times was a victim of a lack of run support. And there's a number. If you look at his, his game logs, a number of games where he maybe only got one, two, three runs of support. And he always told us during 2015 that he wanted to pursue football but I think it's worked out okay with him in baseball, drafted in 2016 in the fifth round by the Dodgers. Still has his career going today. Last year spent – last season spent most of the season um, with one of the more crazier names in the minor league baseball, the Amarillo Sod Poodles. Um, him <laughs> joined by Owen Miller also on that team as well. Um, he's a non-roster invitee this year, which when hopefully baseball gets back or spring training uh, finishes up. But him and Owen Miller, both two names that I think a lot of people are expecting to hopefully break into the bigs one days absolutely and and you know another name from that that year you know I mentioned Joel Stoll I don't know if many people remember him but he's a former the Ohio State Buckeye he was with the Chinooks for a couple of years but he had a couple of nice performances too one before the end of the year against Battle Creek and then you had Jack Landwehr who was with the team a couple of years too and he ended up being I don't want to say the closer that year but certainly by the end of the year he had taken over that role well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to head to 2016 and cover probably the most dominant pitching performance by any Chinook to date. We'll get right back to that when we continue right here on the Chinook Social Network with the Nook Nation podcast. Stay tuned. Back here on the Nook Nation podcast with the voice of the Chinooks, Matt Menzel, and we are talking about the Chinooks' top pitching performances from the first eight seasons in Chinooks history. And kind of talking before we go to 2016, we should mention Lake Bacar 
it was kind of a war season for him. He was the team MVP for pitching, North League All-Star, and postseason All-Star. But someone that really had an award season was from the 2016 season, Marshall Kozowski. Yeah, I mean, you talk about – we mentioned it kind of briefly in our last segment. Okay, he was on the team in 2015, and he had some great performances. I don't want to, you know, discredit what he was able to do that summer. And he had a couple of 11 strikeout performances in 2015, both just so happened to be against the Wisconsin Woodchucks. But, man, did he make a name for himself. If he hadn't already, he certainly did in 2016. It was a, a year in which he was an all-star on top of the fact he was not just the pitching MVP of the team, but he was the overall MVP of that 2016 squad. And, boy, I mean, you look at some dominant showings. and He had 87 strikeouts in 2016 alone. And the reason that's significant is because there's a big difference between one and two for strikeouts in a single season in team history. Lake Bakker and Kozowski, both in 2015, had 63 strikeouts. So, I mean, you'll get, what, a 24-strikeout differential between what Kozowski did in 2016 versus what anybody else has done in the, any other years of the team. But, no, he came out and, and ended up going 3-1 and one that 2016 season. His lone loss was a one nothing setback against Madison at Duck Pond. He had an ERA of 1.56, the 87 strikeouts, only 22 walks. Four times he had 10 or more strikeout performances, including – 12 strikeouts in back-to-back performances. And, again, he just – when he went out there, you, you almost got to a point where you had expectations of something special was about to take place. And he had kind of a unique journey. I can never remember the universities he all attended, but I'm pretty sure before the 2016 season, he was involved in a really bad car crash. Uh, they thought his playing career was over. He wasn't sure if he was coming to us. He rehabbed. And then he went on to do all of this and became the only – uh, Chinook's player to be pitcher of the year, but also our team MVP. And you mentioned it being the Northwoods League pitcher of the year as well, too. So only Chinook to ever do that. I mean, as we kind of talked about Sean Anderson taking the mound, he knew you were going to get a win. It, it was almost laughable. I mean, every time we saw that we had Marshall on the mound, we knew we were good, good hands that game. Yeah, you look at one game that stands out from 2016 with Kozowski, and it was, I think, June 23rd. The Kenosha Kingfish, the opponent, got the win. He went seven strong. He allowed one run, four hits, 10 strikeouts, walked just four. Again, that's significant only because the Chinooks never really had the Kingfish number for the first couple of years. I mean, he dominated the Kingfish in that particular game. He had the, the one nothing loss I mentioned against Madison. He had 11 strikeouts in that game. But, I mean, again, he ended up being the tough luck loser in that game because there was no run support at a usually highlight-filled venue. And you have Kozowski against Wisconsin that year. He had a – a 12 strikeout showing in which he had a no decision. He went six strong, but 12 strikeouts. Ended up being a one nothing win for the Chinooks, but not when he was pitching. Ended up being Luke Summerfeld and, and Nick Horvath, who would come on relief in that performance. And then you had the, 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 the game against Wisconsin Rapids, a one nothing loss. He did not factor the decision, but he went seven strong, another 12 strikeouts against the Rafters. And again, that's significant because Wisconsin Rapids, about this time, was starting to turn that corner from being a team that had been struggling for pretty much every year of their existence to becoming a championship contender. And, man, I get my years mixed up always in 2016 and 17. We did or we did not make the playoffs in 2016? Made the playoffs and lost to Wisconsin Rapids. Now, that was the game we played at Rapids. We had 12, 13 guys total, very limited staff, and unfortunately we took quite the beating from Rapids, if I remember right. 
19 to three. And I, I was sitting there with, uh, I believe it was Dean Radke and Sean Keeson and Jacob Nelson from our office. We drove up. And I think after the first inning, it was like 10 to nothing or 10 to one. And I had updated the score on Facebook and someone called me on and said, oh, the guy updating Facebook clearly accidentally had a typo. It says it's 10 to one in the first inning. I remember replying, no, it's 10 to one in the first inning. I mean, unfortunately, we just had so many guys either injured or they had to go back to school and we had a very limited roster, extremely limited pitching staff and it was just it the guys gave it their all but unfortunately Rapids was just too tough of a team that year to beat. Well and you look at that team and again it goes back to other things we've talked about with where the franchise ranked when it came to pitch and that 2016 staff ranked number one with a 3.31 ERA but again guys were, were leaving before the postseason put in a tough spot ran into a red hot Wisconsin Rapids team that that had been somewhat well-rested and had already, you know, clinched their playoff spot well in advance. And so they were able to kind of start to figure out what they wanted to do as far as starting pitching went in the postseason. And then you played a ballpark like Witter Field up there where, I mean, that, you know, we talk about smaller ballparks like the Duck Pond and Kenosha up in uh, Wausau Athletic Park. Same thing at Witter Field at Wisconsin Rapids. That ball, I mean, you could check swing and it carries over the fence. And going back to that playoff game in Rapids, we were completely out of pitching. And I remember we were sitting right beyond the dugout, and Eddie just started asking guys if they've ever pitched before. And Joe, Jake Cole is in the University of Parkside. Um, had been with us a few different years, 2015 and 16. He was a catcher. And he said, yeah, I pitched in high school, coach. So Jake went out there, and I think it was in the sixth or seventh inning, and proceeded to pitch three innings for the Chinooks. And I don't know, I'd have to look it up how many runs he gave in, but – it was incredible. I mean, he'd throw one pitch that was high 70s and the next one would be in the 60s. And he just couldn't get a flow going, but he was fooling hitters left and right. And when I talked to him after the game, I said, so you pitched in high school? He was, no, I've never pitched in my life. <laughs> he just said that because we had another uh, another player who went out there and during warm-ups hurt his arm, actually. So this was like a real pinch situation. Jake wasn't playing at the time as catcher. Went in and made a memorable moment for himself, but it was just unreal trying to watch these rapid rafters try to hit this guy who's never been a pitcher before. Well, you tend to hear those stories or expect to hear those stories at the beginning of the season, not not in playoff baseball. But I mean, when you're waiting for guys to show up, and I remember I think it was the summer of 2012, and that's when you, you still played three game series against teams, and the Snooks played the first five games on the road, and they had two at Green Bay and then three straight at, at Battle Creek. And I remember by game five, of that season, the final game at Battle Creek got to a point where, where John Bonelich looked for anybody to pitch. And pretty soon you had position guys coming out there to everybody log like two or three innings each just to get through that game. It, it got to a point where you didn't even care about the win-loss. You just were trying to survive and get out of there and start focusing on the next series against Eau Claire. But there, there's so many great stories or, or stories around this league where you have guys playing out of position just, to, again, fill a roster spot. I think it was the, the next year, the year after that, 2016 maybe where uh, you, had, you had pitchers playing the outfield in Eau Claire just to, again, fill spots before other guys would show up. I remember Bray Kimball, we'll probably talk about him when we talk about top offensive performances. I don't think he had caught her. It had been a long time since he'd been behind the dish. All of a sudden, he went from being in the outfield to being a catcher in that aforementioned Battle Creek series in 2012. So there, there's so many stories like that. You don't expect to hear that in the postseason, but that's kind of the, 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 the you know, hand that was dealt the Chinook direction in 2016. And kind of closing the book on Marshall, 
you know, finished the season with us, pitcher of the year, Northwoods League pitcher of the year, went on next year to be drafted by the Dodgers. And another guy similar to Lake Bakar, who I think will break out into the pros anytime soon when we get back, baseball back. You know, he's been in double A the last two years, um, 27 appearances this year, 41 last year. And was one of the few guys that was invited to Arizona Fall League along with Owen Miller and a few other Chinooks alums. So I think Marshall is well on his way to uh, seeing the Dodger blue at Dodger Stadium sometime soon. Yeah, I absolutely agree 100%. I mean, he, again, it, it's hard to gauge because certainly you get to that next level and, you know, the competition gets that much greater. But, I mean, he just has lights out stuff. I think one other name to kind of to discuss as we kind of talk about 2016 that, again, it was kind of tough to get out of Marshall's shadow that year. But Keenan Bartland from Richmond had some nice outings, and he was also a Northwoods League All-Star. Yeah, Snooks, you know, you look at their history. They've had some success with guys from Richmond successful players that have been Richmond Spiders and Keenan Bartlett, no exception. He had a game on July 14th of that year, 4-3 victory, took 10 innings to win at Simmons Field against the Kenosha Kingfish, starting pitcher, no decision, but he went six in the third strong, one of his longer outings that year, allowed no runs on one hit, six strikeouts, walked three before Jack Landwehr and one of his multi-years with the Snooks would come on and, and get the win that, that game. But what people may not remember is Bartlett actually spent Roughly, you know, about a year or so plus with the uh, Snooks at a, you know, besides that 2016 season, he'd eventually be drafted in 2017 in the 31st round by the San Francisco Giants. He's uh, one of the names that comes out from that year. Outside of Richmond, the, the Snooks have had a great deal of success with talent out of Miami, out of Ohio and Oxford. Cole Gannett's that year, he was a Snook for a couple of seasons. Uh, we'll talk about Zach Spears. He was part of that Miami of Ohio team, went and played for the Snooks in 2017. And you go even to this past summer, 2019, a guy like Grant Hartwig, who was one of the brighter spots for what was a pitching staff that was a game of musical chairs. So, I mean, up and down this list, you know, a couple of schools that jump out, but Bartlett out of Richmond and then a couple of guys from Miami of Ohio, some of the programs the Snooks have had success with in the past. And after that disappointing loss at Rapids, it would take us to the 2017 season. Where unfortunately, another great news, we made it to the playoffs. Unfortunately, we ran into Winterfield and the Wisconsin Rapid Raptors again. Not as bad of an outcome or performance, but unfortunately, the Rapids had our number again. That was our last playoff appearance to date. What do you remember best about 2017's pitching staff? I was looking at some of the names, and, and you know, you go back to last now three seasons, 2017, 18, 19, and, you know, to be fair, those three seasons, for lack of a better way to put it, had some struggling showings. I mean, you had some guys in bright spots. Don't get me wrong, but you also would see, you know, an encyclopedia worth of names throughout the, the last now three seasons. And I'll get into that as we go along too. But 2017, I guess some of the names that jump out would be a Cirillo Watson. He was with the team early on, a Illinois fighting Illini. He'd be drafted 2019 by the Dodgers. Do you remember, and I don't at all, and rightfully so, but Aaron Patton, I mean, that's a name that, that he was a pitcher of the night in the Northwoods League, and who? He was a St. Louis Billiken, and I guess the reason I don't remember him is being that we only do home games, he made three appearances, three starts, all on the road. So he never made an appearance at Capitol Park. I can honestly say no. I mean, I'm sure if I asked John Kane, our manager of baseball operations, he could give me a, a long history about him, but like you, I had to look up Aaron Patterson and that he was part of the 2017 squad in St. Louis University. And that's about as much as my knowledge on Aaron Patterson. <laughs> so. 
Well, he had a nine. The thing is, too, he had a, a nine strikeout performance at Madison that year. So he comes on June 2nd, a 10 to 3 win against the Mallards. And I mean, 79 pitches, nine strikeouts over the course of six innings. He was 1 0 that year with a, a ERA below four. You know, I mentioned Zach Spears. He had a couple of nice showings. Austin Jones, a product from UW Whitewater. Aaron Winkler, another guy from Richmond who had some nice pitching performances. But but Alec Marsh is one of the names that I guess came to my mind, especially toward the end of the year, an Arizona State product. Alec Marsh had a, a game in which, you know, we talk about the, the challenges of a complete game showing. And he had a complete game showing on July 27th that year against the Rockford Rivets, a 4-1 Chinook victory. He went the distance. He threw 109 pitches, 69 were in the strike zone. Uh, he ended up giving up a single run. It was not earned. Six hits, six strikeouts, walking just one. And then about a week later, he came back and faced Kenosha. He went six strong. Again, no runs, a hit, six strikeouts, one walk. And you look at Alec Marsh, he was a Milwaukee native. He ended up going five and two. He ended up winning his last four decisions, and he did so with an ERA right below four. So he was a guy that really came out strong as the season went on, and he was probably one of the more consistent pitchers down the stretch. Drafted last year by Kansas City in a very early round, too, uh, which shocked a lot of people. Played in rookie ball last year. His status and level has yet to be determined, obviously, with baseball's delay. But I was glad you touched base on uh, Austin Jones because that was actually his third season with us. He was with us 2014-16 and then would go on to 2017, which, well, I guess we are talking about 27. I'm sorry. I, he was 28. Oh, he was a really dominant year. But I believe he's our only – player to be here for four different seasons with us yeah because he was back in 2018 as well you're yeah. dead on I mean four seasons which is I mean three is unheard of and, and a yeah. few guys have been around three now for the Snooks including Luke Sommerfeld but four I mean that, that's unheard of and you're right I mean he kind of made a little bit of a splash in 2014 a little bit of a, a splash here and there in 2016 but 2017 I mean he really came on strong thing same thing in, in 2018 for a little bit but he ended up being a 26th round draft pick of the Chicago Cubs in, in 2016. And one of Jones' better performances in 2017 came against Kalamazoo, in which ended up being a 1 0 win. And, and you talk about, I, I remember this game well because from a broadcast standpoint, I, I still can't decide if I like a good offensive slugfest or a well pitched game. I guess I'm kind of in between. It depends on my mood on any day I wake up. But in this particular day, it ended up being an outstanding pitching performance. One run in the entire game. Came in the bottom of the first. Austin Jones went five strong that day. No runs, three hits, no strikeouts, one walk. And then you give the ball to Parker Sandberg, who ended up closing that game. But all about pitching. And somehow those guys protected a one-run advantage. And you mentioned, you know, we talked about Aaron – or I'm sorry, Austin Jones doing four seasons. Aaron Winkler, 2017, that was his debut season. He was back in 2019, which we'll talk about. And he's actually tentatively scheduled to return to Lakeshore this summer in 2020. Uh, we haven't announced our roster yet. Obviously, with um, not knowing if we're going to have a season, we decided to hold off on all roster announcements. But Aaron Winkler tentatively coming back to Lakeshore for a third season. Now, you just touched base on one of these individuals real quickly. And as you kind of listed your top performances of 2017, two names, interesting, not on that list, was our team pitcher of the year, Austin Havacost, and Parker Sandberg, who was an all-star. Um, Nominee. And I don't believe Parker Sandberg appeared in the game. I believe he got drafted or he got signed right before that and did not make an appearance in that All-Star game. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wrote in my notes to Austin Havacost, team pitcher of the year. And 
And I'll be honest, I mean, I obviously remember seeing his name many times, but I can't tell you a whole heck of a lot about him. I mean, I think it's one of those with some of the other guys we've talked about that maybe don't have, you know, these these ridiculous totals or lines on, on the box score, but he just came out there and, and was a good relief guy, a good back into the bullpen kind of guy that was able to protect advantages. And kind of same thing with Parker Sanford, who came on and, and took over the, the closer role, and he had some nice performances, but again, I, I, stat-wise, you know, nothing jumps out per se as far as strikeouts and walks or lack of. Uh, but but those guys just, again, got it done for a pitching staff that overall was near the, the bottom half of the league when it came to overall team ERA. And I think the most interesting story about Austin Havacost, you know, he was with us in 2016. He struggled quite a bit. And so when Dean Radeke and A.E. Morgan made the decision to bring him back in 2017, there was a lot of us kind of rolling some eyes wondering, why are you bringing this guy back? And Dean had a lot of faith in him. He did a lot of off-season work at Kent State, and he came back a completely different he was better. 2017 team. He was worked definitely out. better. Went on to get drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays in the 2018 draft. So, and also just a good team guy, leader in the in the dugout as well, too. So, so that would bring us to the start of the Travis Acre era in 2018. And unfortunately, another season where we didn't make the playoffs. And Probably, I would say, I don't know if you agree on this, I would say 2018 is the year we probably have struggled the most on the field at Capitol Park. There's no question about that. And, uh, I mean, you go back to 2018, to see that I, I know many would like to forget. And to be fair, though, even with all that being said, okay, it was a team that went 29 and 42. You still look, and, and especially in the first half, team was still playing going into the final week of the half you know it was a, a free-for-all as far as the south division that you're concerned even you know the second half they still had moments where they started off six and oh seven and one eight and two in the second half and then things kind of you know fell rock bottom they lost their final seven games of that year longest uh, losing streak in team history but you look at pitching too and that was at least stat wise number wise it was it was the worst pitching staff if you will in team history, yet there are still a lot of bright spots. And, and that's the thing about this league is, you know, stats don't tell everything. And, and, and certainly in this case, and there was a bright spot in Kevin Tybor. He was a, a product from Carthage. He was an all-star. He was a team pitcher of the year that year. And, and he had a couple of nice performances in the year in which he went four and seven. But yet, again, if you dig deeper into those seven losses, four of those losses, the team scored one run or less. So, I mean, again, there's an example of a guy that was pitched well enough to probably win a number of games, but he had nothing behind him to, to support him. And, and he ended up pitching on, on June 19th. One of his better performances came June 19th of 2018, a game against Wisconsin Rapids, a 9-4 to Chinook victory. He went seven, allowed no runs, two hits, four strikeouts, did not walk anybody. But what, what jumped out to me is he threw 85 pitches, 62 of those were strikes. So he was only out of the strike zone. 23 times in that game and that was special but then he came back July 9th and pitched a complete game again one of the handful of not any complete games in team history and that also came against Wisconsin Rapids and he had the Raptors number and that was another Wisconsin Rapids team that was right there in the conversation for a, a league championship and he ended up going three and one against the Raptors that year and on July 9th he had a complete game a four nothing win at Capco Park over Wisconsin Rapids no runs six hits five strikeouts, no walks, and again, he was in command of the strike zone that day with probably two-thirds of his pitches in the friendly four corners. 
and he'll go down in history as probably one of the only pitchers to propose to his girlfriend <laughs> for a game too. So uh, he wasn't pitching that day. I believe it was the last game of the year. And it was. he came to us with this plan. And my first thought is there's no way she's going to fall for this. And, you know, they, they had run the game plan that Travis is giving away a first pitch to a player and he wanted, and he decided he was going to give it to his girlfriend. So I'm standing by the dugout thinking she's got a hundred percent know what's going on. And, she was in complete shock and awe that uh, he pulled it off. And it was a really cool moment at Capitol Park. and made a top 10 list that season. But, yeah, definitely uh, Kevin Tyborg definitely takes the honors, honors of being the uh, pitcher of the year for 2018. I have just a random question that, that I sometimes wonder about proposals at sporting events. If you're being proposed to, do you just say yes, even if you want to say no, because there's so many people watching? Now, granted, this was a happy couple, but I'm saying just the big picture. I mean, I almost feel like some people feel like they have to say yes, but I wonder what the conversation is like in private later thereafter. I'm sure there's been a lot of yes, and then we need to talk about this later once the cameras are off. But, yeah, absolutely. And then I'm sure there's some people that have threatened to leave their their better half if they got proposed to a game. I was always told don't ever think of uh, proposing yep. at a ballpark. But we've actually had probably about two or three proposals at the ballpark during first pitches. But – Kevin Tidebord is definitely the most memorable. Now, a lot of similarities as far as record between 2018 and 2019. I don't think I would credit to the failures of recruiting or anything like that. I think a lot of it is they're just guys didn't end up showing up. Some guys just didn't pan out, which happens a lot in the Northwoods League, especially, you know, more on the offensive side, I think. But some guys just have a great college season, and then they come here and just have a completely different season. Would you tend to disagree or agree with that kind of notion that it just, you know, I think on paper these guys look great heading into 2018, 2019, and more of 2019 season, you know, we, we had a few hot streaks, but they just couldn't put it together for a long enough period of time. No, I think the other thing that factors in, too, is some of these guys come with, with you know, already predetermined pitch totals or inning limits. And the problem that you have, and again, I, I hate to always on these podcasts pick on the umpiring, but, but I'm going to because it's, it's a developmental league for everybody. And so they're learning as well. And I know one of the biggest gripes you have in the league is the inconsistent strike zone. And so you start to see some of these pitchers. You look at some of these pitch totals. I mean, it's not uncommon to see 100-plus on a regular basis from a starter. But I, I would think if you're a college coach, you start to see, hey, my guy's pitching, you know, once – you know, every week or every week and a half, and he's throwing 100 pitches. Pretty soon you got guys that are being yanked back in the early. I mean, you got to protect the goods. So I think sometimes that comes into play as well. But you look, especially the last couple of years, it seems like it's playing a bigger factor. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's all of a sudden now, you know, coaches are more, you know, alert of, of some of these numbers or, or whatever the case may be. But that 2018 team, 32 guys pitched during the course of the year. 16 had starts. And, and that, that's a high number. Then you come back to this past season, 2019, 35 different guys took the ball on the mound at some point. 23 had starts. So I bring up that term, encyclopedia worth a name, but it has been the last couple of years. And, and I know Travis Acres said this past summer, and it came out to be true, he never really had a, a, a consistent rotation. And he knew that going in that was going to be a problem. It was. You had some guys step up. I hope as, as the, you know, the, the league goes on and if there is a season this, this summer with an expanded roster, that starts to, you know, decrease of an issue. But 
but you're starting to see, you know, guys not sticking around a lot longer. A lot of starting pitchers from day one are not with the team come the last day of the season. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head with, in our earlier seasons, you were used to having that four or five man rotation. And unfortunately, it's just not really possible anymore in summer collegiate and Northeast League baseball because of the turnover. When we talk about the 2019 season, I think the name that will be remembered the most is probably the most dominant pitching performance, maybe out of the Chinooks outside of Marshall, probably our best relief pitcher, and that had to be our closer, Will Klein. Yeah, and, and I want to go back to 2018 real fast and bring up two things that I didn't mention, and, and that is the only thing that jumped out of 2018 besides Kevin Tybor, you had Brandon Komar, and the only reason I bring him up is because he came back in 2019, he made one appearance, ended up being drafted and kind of had a farewell. I know he's at the ballpark still and, and kind of got honored, but he got drafted in the 13th round by the San Diego Padres. And I want to bring up, I know I bring him up, and I did last week on the last podcast, Aiden Wojciechowski, because he was on the team in 2018, a former intern turned pitcher. And I bring him up only because, A, he actually made a start at one point for the Chinooks. He also had a, a gigantic relief appearance where he ate up a ton of innings against Kenosha and a 14-inning marathon, a doubleheader. So a couple of things that jump off from, from 2018. But going back to 2019, you're, you're right. You know, when you think of closers and as far as pitchers go, and, and, and you know, Andrew Elliott, for me at least personally, he, he's always going to be number one because he was so dominant. But it just, I guess you wrap it up with all the success the team had in 2014. But Will Klein is a close maybe 1B to Andrew Elliott because it's the same thing where anytime Will Klein, an Eastern Illinois Panther, would come out of the mound, end up being the pitcher of the year for the team too, he'd come to the mound and, and, and the heck if you fall in the strike zone, everyone's watching the radar gun because that thing was hitting triple digits. I mean, it was some ridiculous numbers. So he could have been wild, like, like you know, major league and, and hit the net, whatever. It didn't matter. Everyone was watching the, the radar gun to see. But, but he was pretty, uh, you know, on point, too, with, with strikes. Ended up coming through with seven saves tied for a second in Chinook history. Yeah, .85 ERA, 21 games. or I'm sorry, 21 innings or 16 games. Only gave up two runs. And we talked about the velocity and the radar gun. And, you know, he rode with our staff actually to Waterloo, Iowa for the All-Star game this year, being our lone representative and a quieter individual, not much of a talker, you know, got in the car, put his headphones on, and we wandered over to beautiful Waterloo, Iowa, which I hope everyone has the chance of their lifetime to go visit that fine city. Um, but, you know, we, when we were taking him to the ballpark, he said to us, now he was originally supposed to be shut down shortly before that. He had hit his limit, um, and then his coach and Travis agreed that it'd be really good if he could get in front of some stuff at the All-Star game. So that was going to be his last performance, and he was going to completely shut down and rest for the rest of the summer. On the way to the ballpark, he says, I'm going to throw my arm out today to see if I can hit 100. He says, I'm going to put everything I have into these. And they were all kind of told they were going to probably face about three batters. I don't remember what inning it was, but uh, Donnie brought him in to face the final two batters of the inning, and right out of the gate, 97. So we all, he had our attention right away. And then after each pitch, I think he threw like only 10 pitches in his outing, you know, 97, 97, 98, 99. And then there, you know, they couldn't have 100 on the radar gun, so it was 0-0. And sure enough, I mean, he had that place standing and cheering for him as he worked his way up to 100. And, yeah, next morning, arm wasn't feeling the greatest, but, you know, he got right away soon after that, uh, you know, Travis was getting calls from scouts left and right. His university was, and, you know, he's going to be well on his way, I think, to a very uh, great minor league and major league career. He was definitely well worth the price of admission. And, you know, we mentioned so many different pitchers from that team. And, and 
again, 35 or used at various points. I think one name that people often forget about too, because he was part of the team early on and, and, and never, you know, saw the season through the guy that started the home opener, a product from South Carolina, a former Gamecock, Parker Coyne. And he had a game, you know, on June 23rd against Wisconsin Rapids, his lone victory. I mean, he, he suffered some, some tough defeats throughout the course of the year, but three nothing went against the rafters. He went seven and two thirds, no runs, couple of hits, eight strikeouts, couple of walks before Will Klein came on and got the save in that contest. But, you know, I, I remember talking with Travis Acre before that home opener and mentioned what I mentioned before that, you know, it's going to be kind of a put together rotation. We don't know exactly what to expect from pitching throughout the course of the year. And I remember seeing Parker Coyne after the home opener and go, this is going to be put together. This is what they consider a put together type pitching staff. Yeah, this team might be all right. Cause Parker Coyne, he certainly had good stuff. It just, again, it seemed like, at least in 2019, if the pitching was on, the defense wasn't, nor was the hitting. If the hitting was on, then the other two factors weren't. So it, it never seemed like, except maybe once or twice all year, it all three facets of the game come together. Yeah, and like you kind of said, it was it was an odd cast of characters this past summer. You know, a lot of a lot of different guys stepping up, Trevor Teeth, Grant Hartwig. Uh, one name that you had on your list that kind of caught my attention was Troy Black. Predominantly a third baseman in an infield. Yeah. No, you, you look at it throughout Sinook history, there's probably, probably about three, four guys that have, that have had that dual role. And Troy Black ended up being one of those guys, typically on that left side of the infield, and then turned pitcher out of Faulkner. And one time, Fond du Lac Doc Spider. And, and he ended up making six appearances during the course of the year, a couple of starts, mainly all toward the end of the season, ended up having two wins and a couple of defeats. But if you look at Troy Black and one of his better performances came against his former team on July the 24th. It was game two of the uh, day-night doubleheader that were both played at Capco Park. And it helps when you have the kind of run support he got that day. I know from a confidence standpoint, he could be a little more, you know, loose. And it'd be a 20-5 to Chinook win. And he gave the team five innings. He only allowed eight run. It was not earned. He had five hits allowed, three strikeouts, a couple of walks. He did so throwing 75 pitches. 48 strikes. I know he always wanted to try to pitch. They gave him that opportunity toward the end. And for the most part, he made the most out of those opportunities. You look at that game, though, against Final, like, another thing that stands out to me is a guy named Joe Roundtree come on for the save. And I bring him up because his brother Eli was part of the uh, Snooks in 2013 as an outfielder. So you don't often see brothers. We, I know they had the Duns, but, you know, outside of that, I mean, it doesn't happen very often in this league where you have brothers come to the same franchise, but the Roundtrees. And Joel was a, a member of the Snooks before the end of the season. I'll be honest. I didn't know that his brother came. I, the, the first time I've heard Joe Roundtree's name is on this podcast right here. I mean, <laughs> the end of the season was really chaotic. You know, we had a lot of games. We had the Mac fun game. So I didn't get as much time to pay attention on the field. But, you know, it's funny you bring Eli Roundtree. And you kind of talked about earlier in 2012 how every day there was a new name. And, boy, it really felt like a scene out of Major League in 2012. Like, Eli Roundtree who the heck is this guy? I mean, every day <laughs> there was a new pitcher or two on our staff in 2012. So, so I'm going to put you on the spot outside of Marshall, who would you say would be Marshall's number one, probably all time. You would agree. Who would you, put yeah, I would as, agree with that. Who would you put as number two? If you had to pick somebody. Boy, that is tough. I, I would, I would probably lean toward Joe Greenfield, to be honest with you. And, I, and again, it just I think what, what helps him is his personality. 
the fact he was there a couple of years, the fact that he was a quick worker, he was effective. I think Tyler Tickey certainly would be in that conversation. Now, I'm, I'm basing this based on starting pitching because if I'm going every pitcher, again, I'm certainly, you know, Will Klein and Andrew Elliott in that conversation too. I, they certainly would be my 1A, 1B when it comes to all-time closers in team history. But it's tough because it's kind of like, you know, when you ask when you have kids who your favorite kid is, and obviously you don't have a favorite kid. But, but it, you know, same type of thing where from a pitching standpoint, depending on, I guess, on the, the, the year, I mean, I, I could come up with a whole, you know, different list. But I guess be, being put on the spot, I would probably say Joe Greenfield would be right up there. A guy we didn't really talk about, Cody Glenna, you know, I was a fan of back in 2012. Nick Soldano, another name we didn't really talk about, but kind of a fan of his back in 2012. And I guess as a, as a Concordia alum, one thing I was proud of this past season, maybe not from a, you know, stamp standpoint, but finally had a Falcon that was a, a Chinook. And Lucas Mirdink, he made five appearances and was part of that pitching staff. And uh, he was a name that, that jumps out too. So, yeah, I guess being put on the spot, Joe Greenfield, maybe Tyler Tickey would be a couple of names that, that would be right there with Marshall Kozowski as some of the more dominant pitchers in team history. Well, that's going to wrap up our conversation about the top pitching performances. We're hoping this year our pitching staff and the whole Chinooks roster can get back to Capitol Park for a Wisco summer, the 2020 season presented by Port Washington State Bank. We will have an update for you as soon as we know it. Make sure to tune into all of our social media platforms and LakeshoreChinooks.com. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Nook Nation podcast featuring the top offensive performances. So we're looking forward to that one. As I mentioned, we're going to have exclusive interviews with Sean Anderson of the Giants and Alex Young of the Diamondbacks. Hope to get Travis Acre back on the podcast soon to kind of talk about his offseason, how he's adapting to the quarantine life right now, and his outlook on the 2020 season. Matt, thanks for joining me in, uh, for a second week in a row here. I appreciate any time. It, it keeps me busy. All right, he is Matt Menzel. I'm Eric Snodgrass. And that wraps up this week's edition of the Nook Nation podcast right here on the Chinook Social Network. We'll see you right back here next week. Thanks for tuning in.